uh, this message today is why would God even judge? Okay, why would God even judge? Um, just looking at this, just setting this up, in the first eight verses, you don't really see any mention of Nineveh. Uh, you don't really see any mention of, uh, of Assyria. You don't see any of those things. In fact, if you look at verses 1 to 8, you could even say these words of God's judgment, with the exception of verse 1 in the introduction. But in verses 2 to 8, you could see these words could be generally applied to all nations. That God would judge and is capable and strong and is controlling over nature and controlling evil over human beings to judge. Okay, So in looking at this, the way I see how this text is in verses, um, really if the focus will be verses 2 to 8, is um, how I see the structure is in verses 2 to 3, at least the first half of verse 3, we see um, the reason why God judges is because of his attributes. It's because of his attributes. And in the second part, if you look, is in verses 3, second half, to verse 5, is we see God has the power to judge. How do you know this? It's His power over nature. It's His power over nature. And then in verses 6 to 8, we need to know God has the power to judge because of His power over human beings in verses 6 to 8. But for this, uh, for only today's lesson, um, ideally I wanted to actually preach all eight verses, but I'm actually going to be looking at only verses 2 to verses 3. Um first half okay so it's actually one and a half verses but i actually think um there's a lot to even look within there and i think what what i want to look at these verses is actually i want to show us is that if you're taking notes today we're going to see that there's five attributes of god why god has to judge okay um nineveh there's five attributes of god of why uh, that we need to consider of why god judges um, Nineveh, okay? So there's going to be five attributes. I think uh, for tonight, I'll just list them when we go on with each. And I think why this is important when we read verses 2 to 3 is because um, when we read the book of Nahum, uh, when we read the book of Nahum, uh, I know there's one commentary at least out there that actually says, oh, you know what, well, Nahum, it might be more of a nationalistic propaganda. So this is a much more progressive um, or, or more liberal commentary where it says this is, you know, like there's not much to contribute in terms of theology. This is more of a nationalism kind of thing. And I know today the word nationalism is such a buzzword, right? Like people say Christian nationalism, you know, uh, far right or white supremacy nationalism, that kind of um, stuff, right? But I want to actually make a point that when God is talking about why he judged Nineveh, the reason why he judges is actually to be very important. And actually, I think when you read the whole entire book of Nahum, and especially in looking at the uh, at the first uh, three verses, actually, or even one to eight, you see that the reason why God judges is not because God is on the side of Israel, and therefore he's playing politics. Okay, if Israel is like this, if Judah is like this, therefore I'm going to be uh, in favor of these nations. Therefore, that's why I, I want to curse um, uh, or, or for God to curse or destroy Nineveh, simply because God is on the side of Israel. If we know anything from Scripture, it should be the other way around. We should be on the side of who? God, right? If you guys remember even the story of Joshua, when Joshua saw the angel of the Lord, um, when he was about to go to promised land, he said, hey, are you with us or against us? And it's like the other way around. Like, no, I'm the, you know, uh, I, you know he, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord is God. And it's more, we should be with God, not the other way around. So I think this is important when we look at this, um, is considered like, why would God judge even in the first place, okay? Why would God judge Nineveh? Why would God judge any nation? And why would God even judge even continuously even today in our world today? Um, for those, some of you guys who are in the retreat, we've um, part of looking at First Peter, what Pastor Chi, the other speaker, mentioned was also about how God, of course, does not judge any of us to go to hell if you're a believer, but God's still disciplined. 
right? God's still disciplined. But why would God discipline? Why would God discipline and why would God judge? These are the characteristics, these are the five attributes of God we need to consider. Again, why is this important in studying the book of Nahum? Is I want to make it very clear that it's not because this book is not just because, oh, they're written by man, that these people just don't like their races, their they're like they just don't like empires and that's why they're doing this and or this is because of political um reasons but the reason is even deeper than any political reasons what's going on here is actually a spiritual reason is because of god's attributes and also because of a serious sinfulness and therefore also as well anybody's sinfulness is why god has to actually what discipline and also even to judge also as well okay does that make sense why i want we want to look at these five attributes um these attributes could be, in one way, you could think, hey, we've studied these attributes of God before. But this is, again, five that's identified in regards to why God is judging um, Nineveh. Okay, So with, with that, the first attribute we see, I do want to make a point to note, um, we're going to look at five attributes. Okay, The first two is actually grouped together. Notice, if you look with me back in, again in verses 2, it says, a jealous and avenging God. Okay? A jealous and avenging God is uh, is the Lord. That's how my New American Standard Bible translate that. Okay, so it pairs them up as a doublet with the first two. Okay, so the first attribute we want to look at. And by the way, I think this is important because when you look at this, the word jealous and avenging. Do we see this anywhere in the Bible? I think if you were to be Jewish and you were to know your Old Testament, when you hear Nahum is being read out loud or you're reading this for yourself, you right away be invoked with a memory of previous Bible verse, okay? So jealous and avenging God, okay? Say this after me. Jealous. Josh, you want to unmute? Jealous and avenging God, okay? Jealous and avenging God. Thank you for being the voice for everyone else, okay? Jealous and avenging God. This, If you read this, I think our memory should be triggered right away to think of what? Of previous parts in the Bible, okay? If you guys could turn with me, what exactly way I identified is you recall us back to the Ten Commandments. Uh, when God's attributes mentioned, if you guys could turn with me to Exodus 20, verses 5, okay? Exodus 20, verses 5, when we turn there, could I ask Mandy, would you be able to be a happy, motivated reader to read for us tonight? And the next one I want to ask is Kike, if you're able to, give me a thumbs up. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Okay, thank you so much. And then, of course, verse 6 also balanced that by saying, Yet God will show loving kindness, right, to far more generations than even three or four. His loving kindness is even greater. But in this context, I think when you hear the word in Nahum chapter 1 verse 2, when you suddenly hear the word, this doublet, a jealous and avenging God, I think for the Jews or for the Hebrew readers or listeners, they would invoke right away with, oh, the Ten Commandments. This is tied with the commandment that you should not worship any other gods. And by the way, part of the problem with Assyria is also, I think there is not just a politics, but there's also a bad theology, and they're also driven by a view of another of other gods and idols too. So when you see these things being invoked, when they're, even though the Assyrians are worshiping power 
and there and you can say one hand that the religion is reflect as a power religion is reflecting what their political desire is or you can see it other way is some people are very sincere in a series that really believe in their theology and therefore that is why they're driven by imperialism by, by going concrete and being um, vicious with others okay so in light of this for the Jews they would have heard this and they would have been realized right away thinking okay this is being judged by God and by the way I think this is important why is this important the God of the Jews or the Hebrews is the same God that's God and Lord over who? The Gentiles, specifically the unbelieving Gentiles, okay? Um, again, why I'm saying these two attributes is important is because it should trigger um, uh, the Hebrews. And we should also likewise know, and one of the things I want to encourage you guys maybe this year is read more of the Old Testament. What James is doing, I think, is a great idea. Continue to read. And Mandy, I think if you guys, I know I say this all the time, um, you know, I, I know Hui asked me too, like, uh, Man, does Manny know more Old Testament than me? And I would say yes, okay? Um, what he asked a few weeks ago on Sunday. And part of it is read it because I feel the more I know the Old Testament, the more the New Testament becomes even more rich, more multidimensional, okay? Where we see that biblical theology. So I think in light of this, seeing this, I guess maybe the example I'll give is when I say once upon a time, you guys would know, when, I, when you hear those words, what do you guys think of right away? You know that I'm going to give a fairy tale, right? Or if I say, um, and they live happily ever after, right away, just those few words, those idioms, would trigger right away, you know this is a story. So in the same way, um, I'm not saying God's word is a fairy tale, but I'm saying when it says these words, a, a jealous and avenging God, you should be triggered right away to think, oh, this is the God that's speaking, that is from the Exodus, right? The God who is alive and everything else, who's shown his power over Gentiles previously in Egypt, Right over Pharaoh. Now we see this is the same God, and this should invoke with us to realize this is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. God is faithful and continuous. So let's now zoom in with the first characteristics of God is a jealous God, okay? A jealous God, okay? Let's turn back again with me to Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. It says, A jealous, da 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 da, will go on, God, okay? The word jealous in the Hebrew, some of your version probably says zealous, okay? Whether it's jealous or zealous, what does this word mean? In the Hebrew, it has the idea when, it, when, it's, when it's referring to God, it refers to God with his commitment to his glory and his holiness. Um, it's his commitment to his glory and his holiness. So that when anyone goes directly in opposition to God's glory and holiness, he is now, um, humanly speaking, in, in language that we could understand, he's now provoked. To, to have to respond to those in opposition of him, okay? Um, it's an adjective that refers to God's anger, okay? It's often uh, when we talk about his zeal or his jealousy, it's his anger um, and his reaction to what? God, others, creatures, trying to violate his right or his covenant, okay? Let's see some example where God's um, jealous or zealous, um, whatever um, version you guys word use, um, let's see some example. What are some sins that actually provoke God to be jealous or zealous? Okay, if you guys uh, remember Exodus twenty verse five, what Mandy read earlier, we're not going to turn there, but Exodus twenty verse five shows the sin of idolatry. Right, you're worshiping something, you're carving something in the physical world, something of an image, and saying that is God. That would provoke God's what zeal. Okay, another one is if you worship other gods. You're, so idolatry sometimes could happen when you say no, I do hold to the biblical God. My God, I call him Yahweh or the God of the Bible. But then you manufacture him according to your image. 
But the other way you could also be wrong with the issue of God is you have a total different God altogether. You're not even trying to say this is the, the living God or the God of the Bible, okay? Um, Josh, you had a question? Uh, I noticed that it also references Psalm 94, 1. Okay. Uh, vengeance belongs to God. Yes, okay. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance shine forth. Yeah, we'll talk about vengeance um, later on with the second attributes, okay? But for now, let's um, look at just only the part that God is zealous or jealous is why he has to judge Nineveh and actually judge all the nations um, with their sins, okay? Um, let's turn real quick right now to Exodus 34, verse 14. I want to show one um, another sin besides idolatry is the worship of other gods, okay? Is one that provokes his jealousy jealousy or zeal and again remember this is jealousy or zeal um that's because of what is his his divine right to receive certain things prerogatives and things like worship and now this is being violated okay if you guys could turn with me to exodus 34 verse 14 and in kike if you could read that exodus 34 verse 14 and josh will be my next reader for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Okay. Amen. This is a, a God that is jealous, okay? Now, I know sometimes we could hear jealous. Um, jealousy is a sin, okay? I do think jealousy, as an emotion or as a human response, um, there's two kinds. One that is sinful and one that is not sinful. The question then is, which one we know it's sinful? And I would say it is sinful in two at least two ways one way we could have wrong sinful i don't let me back up i don't think every jealousy or zeal is sinful okay i don't think every jealousy or um and zeal is sinful the f but one of the way it could be sinful is you're jealous of something that you have no right to does that make sense uh you're zealous or zeal or jealous of something that you have no right to for instance this may be more common as example you could have someone that's young and single and he really wants to, he's a guy and he really wants to be with this girl and the girl says no and that girl decides to be with somebody else and he's now jealous or uh, uh, with that now does he have a right to be jealous does he own her hopefully I say no right okay so he has no basis so that's sinful jealousy does that make sense that's sin because that's not something he he has that's now related to the other side of the coin is covetousness right you're, you're not just only want something someone else has, but specifically saying, hey, this is something I want or else, okay? Um, with it, outside the domain of God's word or law with that. And I think the second way you could also be jealous or zealous is you might be too controlling over something, okay? Too controlling over something. For instance, you could be married and say, um, I do think a husband and wife should be have a jealous love. Does that make sense? Um, it should be where... They want to be monogamous only between each other. And if they're seen a competition, there should be a jealousy. But there could also be a wrong kind of jealousy where now it's overboard. We're saying, hey, I need to, they basically need to be able to um, control that person. Now there's a sin of idolatry of control. Okay. I'm making this point because um, as a pastor, sometimes we're dealing with biblical counseling. People could use these things and say, no, there's rightful jealousy. Yeah, but your idolatry is control. By the way, um, in terms of as a pastor, as a counselor, in regards to abuse, I've noticed that the number one idol for abuse is never what they say. It's actually the idolatry of control. 
If you want to make someone, if you're ever in a situation where you have to minister to someone, and by the way, sometimes ministering to someone that's in an abusive relationship, you might be more effective than even a pastor or a professional clinical. There's a place for that. But in terms of the first responders, does that make sense? The first one responding, they might have, um, that person being abused might have a better relationship, more trust with you than say, I come in as a random pastor they don't know about. Does that make sense? Or even police officer at that moment. So in that case, I think if you know this, to be equipped as believers, the person that's often abusive, uh, an abuser, their number one problem is is control. And man, if you ever want to see someone go crazy, because abusers can sometimes can be very what? Slick. They can be very, say the right words. But if you want to really get to the bottom of the issue and make them turn red so fast, is say, hey, I think you might have a control problem. Suddenly, wow, you talk about fireworks. And sometimes you see where they try to hide so much that being chameleons of what they really are, man, you see the true side of them suddenly comes out when you hit right point blank marksmanship style, bam, just like that, and boom, everything just, they're convicted, hopefully they're convicted, sometimes they are convicted, but they really hate your guts afterward, okay? But at the same time, that's what it is, so with that, with God's zeal, it's different, okay? God's zeal is different, he, everything belongs to Him, okay? Everything is, and He's sovereign, okay? He's sovereign, so with that, that is just like the same way there is a right marriage jealousy, there's the same way with God also for His glory, Okay, where in regards to people robbing it with idolatry or making images, okay, or, or like a f- total fake God, or with idolatry of images of people saying, This is what you are like, but God's really not like that. Does that make sense? So that's what God is provoked. And we know with Assyria, we have uh, a richness of their writings, okay. One of the great things this last year, one of the books I read was actually something Mandy recommended um, that was a really good biblical theology book. That was also serving a lot of the um, Assyrian literature. And, and you see this is like, wow, there's some parallel with the Bible. But also you see, well, there's also a lot of what? Idolatry, right? Um, so you see, this is why God, no wonder, would be provoked to respond to Nineveh as a jealous God. Okay? Because they're bragging about how wonderful are their gods, concrete other gods. But this is one characteristics. Okay? So if you're taking notes, your first characteristics of God is jealous God, okay? Of why God has to judge Nineveh. Let's see a second attribute of God, of why God has to respond to Nineveh. Second characteristics of God is He's an avenging God. He's an avenging God. Okay, so I'm going to go looking, explain the meaning of this word, and then we will go and see even how this passage works with this, okay? So the root word for avenging God, um, in the Hebrew, it actually refers to retribution or punishment. Where God's actually judging. And there's also an aspect where you can see it's almost like a fighting or military um, imagery. Where he's in a, God is in a fighting mode. Okay? And I think this is almost uh, the same thing. Obviously, God is greater than Assyria and all their armies. But it's like God using language, condescending down for us to understand that he is fighting. Just like, like I think the good example is Exodus. God is greater than all the pharaohs, right? But God still uses language. If you read, like, for instance... Um, Exodus 15, when Moses sings, there's the imagery of God as a divine warrior. That's actually God's language to condescend, that is to make us understand, to accommodate to our minds what he is that he's doing in his judgment against sin. He's described as a warrior. So in the same way, God is avenging God. Okay, While the Bible cautions people not to take revenge, this is the prerogative right 
or even duty of God, okay? Now, if you guys can, turn with me real quick to Psalm 94, verse 1. Josh, actually, this is so ironic. I think you read it earlier. But if, uh, Josh, would you be able to read Psalm 94, verse 1 again? stop there notice in this verse it says that he's going to be as judge he will avenge and this is not just only limited to israel this is not just only limited to judah this is actually that he's the lord judge of the earth so he will be the one that's a god of vengeance repaying back the evil that is done okay and by the way let's turn back with me real quick to nahum chapter 1 verse 2 let me ask you guys this question how many times does the word avenge appears how many times does the word avenge appears in its very form, whether as a participle? Twice. Twice? If you look in our section... I don't know if I consider vengeance the same as avenging. So yeah. if vengeance, then it'll be like three times. Yeah, it's actually three times in terms of the Hebrew wor- root word, okay? Three times in one verse. Um, if you have a parent that repeats to you something again and again, do you guys think that's important? That probably is important, especially repeating in three in just one verse three times. It's like he's trying to say, Nahum is trying to say, do not miss that God is a God of vengeance. Okay, so this is an important attribute of God. So he's as a, a God of vengeance. He has to respond to evil. Okay, so again, let me remind us again. The first attribute is he's a jealous God. He's a zealous God. These two are related, right? It's because of his zeal. For, uh, for himself and his glory that drives him to action as a vengeance God. And when his vengeance is not just done out of sheer um, no reason, it's because he's what? A jealous God. Do you guys see how these two are related? Okay. And also, by the way, it relates to other attributes too because he's not jealous for no reason. He actually has the divine right, okay? Divine prerogative over all the world because he created all of that. He he. This is a place that he has rightly so to be zealous okay um so the, these are the first two now let's go to the third one okay there's so there's five characteristics the third one is he's a god of wrath okay he's a god of wrath if you look with me in verses two um it mentions in nahum oh man i lost my place hold quick nahum chapter one verse two if you guys could go back to nahum chapter one verse two Notice it says after mentioning that he is um, that mentioning that he is venging and wrathful and saying again, stating again, second time, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. Right. And then verse three, it says, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. OK, reserves wrath. Um, this word is, is just about anger. I think I've um, when we went over the attributes of God, we've gone over about how God's anger is described almost like um, you know something that's stewing, okay? That's boiling, that that's that's being heated up, okay? I know Caleb, you just joined us. Uh, we're in Nahum chapter one, verse two. We're just only looking at verses two to three today of why five characteristics of God that why God has to judge um, Nineveh, okay? So we've looked at 
uh, with this is he's a God of wrath. Now, let me ask you guys this question. Looking at verse 2 to 3. If for, especially for those that have NSB, how many times does it mention the word wrath or wrathful or some word that's derivative of wrath? Looking at just these two verses. How many times does it mention that? Looking at two and three. I know sometimes in the English it might not be clear, but it actually mentions it twice. Okay, so if he states three times vengeance and then two times again wrath, this is to repeat for emphasis. Okay, just as God is repeating for emphasis that He is a God of wrath. He's pouring out His anger with that. Okay, um, these terms you could think about it as at first you. I don't know if you read this. At least for me, when I first read this, I was like, oh. They're just all there. They all seem kind of synonymous. But the synonymous nature, how it's similar, should reinforce to us about the severity of God's wrath against sin. Okay? So, but I think each one, as we've gone over, has shades of meaning. Okay? So that's the third characteristic. Um, the fourth characteristic of God is beginning in verses 3. Now it says, the Lord is slow to anger. Okay? Slow to anger. Um if you remember when we did about how God is patient or slow to anger, we mentioned that in Hebrew, literally is what? It's long nose. Okay? I think of it as long fuse, just as a reminder. Um, but now, in this historical context, we see that Nahum, again, as we go over the book of Nahum, we eventually see, like, wow, the details of Nahum fulfilled is, to me, if, if you want to go over one book in the Bible that shows you messianic or, or prophecies of the Bible God fulfilled in history... Um, there's many books, but Nahum, I think, is short enough as a great um, survey uh, of God is definitely real, the God of the Bible, and the prediction of that is incredible to the T, okay? But if that's the case, I think we must not forget, this is not just history out of nowhere. This is not just, this is driven by God, okay? By God actually being, having this attribute. And you know what's important? You might say, Jimmy, if you mentioned, Jimmy, why did you say these are five attributes of God? Why God has to judge? Why don't you just say these are just five characteristics of God? I actually think slow to anger. We often think of it as like, that's maybe why God does not judge. And that is true. But notice they didn't say he stopped judge, but rather it's slow to judge. And by the way, when you look at this attribute, slow to anger, this is not the first time in the minor prophet you see this. Reference, and this is not the first time. This is the attribute of God being slow to God, or slow to uh, anger, is mentioned in the prophets, specifically for Nineveh. Do you guys remember? We've gone over Jonah earlier. Do you remember that in the end of Jonah, this is an attribute of God that Jonah says, "God, you have this attribute, and you're displaying this already to Nineveh." So if you're in Nahum, to make a left, you're in the book of Micah, right? You make another left, um, you're in the book of Jonah. Turn with me to Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Um, if I could ask, is it possible, um, Christopher, you read that out loud for us? Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God. And merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Okay, amen. Okay, so he is, notice it mentioned he's slow to anger. Now, remember the irony we went over with Jonah. 
Um, this is one of the reasons why I did really want to go to Nahum, even though I, I felt like oh, I want to go to Obadiah about God judge the nation. But then I was like, oh, but the continuity is too amazing between the two. Um, they're too, too complementary. Okay, if Jonah was um, how I date Jonah was this is many decades before Nahum. God has already been gracious to them, slow to anger once. And then if all that time God has given them since he spared um, Nineveh's destruction, now there's another generation or maybe generations between um, Jonah and Nahum that this is in light of his attribute that God has shown himself to be gracious, to be slow to anger. And now the people are taking advantage of that. And they're not just only taking advantage of that passively, but they're now celebrating being violent um, and being violent to worship their gods by conquest, then how much more so would this be in, att- in light of this attribute as a reason why would God would judge, okay? Um, some of you guys perhaps hear me say this. Um, this is a phrase that the Marines love, love to use. I didn't invent this. This is some, a phrase the Marines love to use a lot is what? Don't take kindness for what? What I always say, those at churches, don't take kindness for weakness, right? God has shown His loving kindness by being slow to anger. But instead of repenting, instead of following after God, they decide to be have pride, right? Of saying, God, you know, um, this will not happen anymore. Maybe that's a past. Maybe that's not real. And now they're going to go out and commit, what? Violent, egregious sins around, all over, and have the pride, and the pride of their false gods also as well. So in light of God being slow to anger, we often think, you know what? That means God would give salvation, which is true. We saw the application, uh, at least physically, salvation that Nineveh was spared in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, right? And nevertheless, you see, the other side of this is when people do not repent, when people do not, when people do take advantage of him being a God that is patient, slow to anger, that's also um, a reason to, for God's slow to anger. And if you guys remember, when we went over common grace, I don't think I mentioned this as much. I think common grace and even um, God's judgment do kiss together in the sense that when God shows grace, I think God generally is showing grace even to the non-believers. There's things he, they benefit from. But when the more people experience God's common grace and still do not respond to the gospel, then therefore there's also more what judgment as a result of God's kindness that they're not doing the right thing to what repent and turn back to him and follow his ways. Does that make sense? So slow to anger is ironically another attribute of God that is why God has to judge Nineveh. And let's go to the fifth anger. Oh, not fifth anger. Fifth characteristics, sorry. Fifth characteristics. Let's turn back with me to um, Nahum chapter 3. Notice after it says slow to anger, it says great in power. Now I'm not going to spend too much time with this attribute. I'm not going to spend too much time with this attribute because next week when we go over verses 3, second half, all the way to verses 8, it's going to focus a lot on God's power, okay? God's power. Um, and I'm going to explain next week a bit why. Why would God be spending going from verses 3a or 3b all the way to verse 8 to brag about the power of God, specifically in two ways, um, God's power over creation and God's power over humans also as well so i'm not going to spend this much time but when it says great in power that serves as an introduction to god's action um that begins in verses uh 3b onwards to verse 8 okay where and this is all as a prologue is is the case and i actually think one of the reasons why this is important is because 
um, Nineveh and, and the Assyrians love to brag about how, how they're powerful, right? Um, how they're strong. Their kings go out to crush lions, hunt lions and all these things. And this is, I think, Nahum's way of saying, God using Nahum is to say, using almost their same motif or same writing is to say, you know what? God is also powerful over creation and over human uh, human beings that, that's his like vassal lords, like he's the lords over his vassal. So in the same way, this is the case. But in light of this, because um, I think this characteristics, God, God is all powerful, is very important. Is very important. Do you guys ever, have you guys ever thought about this before? That we could actually make a distinction between authority and power. Authority and power. We often think of them as the same. And most of the time, those that have authority could have power. But let me give an example of how this would be the case, okay? Um, let's just say there is someone that had kids when they were much older. Um, and then when their kids are in their teens, their teens are being rebellious against their father. But the father, let's just say, is, is, is 70 years old. He does not have as much strength as his 16-year-old son. But does he have authority over his son? What do you guys think? Biblically speaking, if he's under his household in American culture, where I'm not talking about like 14-year-olds that move on and build their own houses, get married in like some other culture. But in American culture, he would have authority. Yes? Okay? But does that necessarily mean his power corresponds to his authority? He might actually be sick. Let's just say he might even have an illness where he's a quadriplegic. Okay? But does he, he might not physically have the power, but he still has the authority, right? He still has the authority. So I bring that up as to say that when God, all those attributes before, God has the moral authority to judge who? Nineveh. But then the next question, because the Assyrians worship power, because they worship power, then the next question is, they're going to say, who cares? But then that's where versus, I mean, I'm already preaching a sermon for next week already. But you get the idea. He will be one that will be what? Judging and has the power to judge. Now, I also want to make one more observation. The last two attributes of God, and I like how God does this in a way where it's like almost like a sandwich. Where there's first two, he groups them together. Remember, the first two is what? He says, the Lord is avenging and wrathful, right? Do you remember see this in verse two? Oh, correction. He's a jealous and avenging God, okay? Then the last um Two is slow to anger and great in power. Okay, um, it's like a doublet. He puts them together, and in the middle is wrath. Wrath is when he's actually taking the action. So I think he's emphasizing all these things is is with that. I think there's some kind of sandwich going on here. Um, maybe not a perfect chiasm, but but I think he's driving the point home still. But I want to make an an observation with that phrase: the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Do you guys see this anywhere else in the Old Testament? Remember how I mentioned earlier, um, the first part is that a jealous and avenging God should make us think right away of Exodus 20 verse 5. This same phrase, this doublet of these two attributes of God, slow to anger and great in power, should also make us think of what? The Old Testament also as well. And previously in God's law. If you guys can, uh, turn with me real quick to... um, Actually, if you look at verses uh, 3, it goes on and says, Where... um, the Lord is uh, slow to anger and great in power. Where is the Lord your God? Right? Or oh, actually, no, oh, and, oh, correction. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
So where do you see these phrases? So if you hear this, you would be right away triggered right away and realize this is Old Testament. Where do we see these combination of these phrases? Slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Um, the first reference, if you guys could, yes, thank you. Wow, that's pretty good. Wow, how did you know? That's pretty good, Kike. Uh, Exodus 34, verse 6. Let's turn over there. Um, Exodus 34, verses 6. Okay. Exodus 34, verse 6. Exodus 34, verse 6. When we turn over there, could I have um, Huey, would you be able to read Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7 for us? Again, Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. Proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, and then in verse 7, right, we, we see, yeah, so notice the phrase here in verses um, 6 mentioned slow to anger, okay? And verses 7 also mentioned the phrase um, where he will visit the Nick, uh, where to go? Um, where, you, you, um, where he's going to be punishing, okay? Definitely those who are sinful. And by the way, this is not just only the only verse. You might even say, Jimmy, where's that part where you mentioned that he is what? That he is great in power. Now, I think this is when, uh, when Nahum mentioned this, he was not only thinking of Exodus 34, he's thinking of two passages. Exodus 34, uh, mentions two of that, right? Like he will definitely punish. And also number one is also the one he's slow to anger. And by the way, um, the context of Exodus 34 was when, is, if you guys remember, um, Moses went up to the mountain of Sinai. He's with God. God's going to give the Ten Commandments and the laws of God. And the people underneath the mountains, away from Mount Sinai, what were they doing? They were making what? Idols by their actions, okay? I actually think this is not the only passage that Nahum should trigger you to think about. In light of the fact that it mentions also as well with the phrase, great in power, um, with these other two attributes or, or these other description or phrases, I think he's also making us purposely try to make us think about Nahum, okay? Oh, correction, Numbers. If you guys could turn real quick with me to Numbers 14, okay? Numbers chapter 14. Um, we're going to just look at verses 17 to 18, okay? Numbers 14, verses 17 to 18. Numbers 14, verses 17 to 18. Rebecca, could you be my happy, motivated reader uh, to read us Numbers 14, verses 17 to 18? Okay. Numbers 14, verses 17 to 18. Numbers 14, uh, verses 17 and 18. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, so here we see um, with this, uh, notice the three phrase is repeated here, right? The phrase that he's powerful in verses 17, um, where it says, mentioned the power of the Lord is great, or great is his power. 
And then in verses 18, it mentions what? The attri- uh, the other, th- the second phrase, which is um, that he, uh, the Lord is slow to anger. And also that whole passage about he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Okay. And all this is to say, why is this important? Why is it important that this passage in Nahum invoke these things to think, make us think about uh, Numbers uh, 14 and uh, also Exodus 34? In both passages, you, what you actually see is people being sinful and rebelling. Okay? Um, both peop- uh, in those contexts, people were sinful and they were rebelling. Okay? So the first one was with the golden calf Okay, in Exodus 34. And here, this is... And the second one, they are, are what? They're being attacked by, by Canaan, okay? They're being attacked by others, but yet the people are, are what? Are, aren't really doing anything, okay? Um, so I think what it shows us here is in both instances, it's actually in the context of sin that these attributes of God were mentioned. And in both instances, God took action to Israel. Do you guys ever feel this sometimes? You feel like, man, God seems to be more harsh with us. Than with non-believers. You guys ever, anyone ever feel this? Have this feeling before? Like, man, um, I still remember when I wanted to be a pastor. Uh, this is more of an analogy. Um, before, if you guys know, in our church, there used to be another pastor that was discipling me and was in our church. And sometimes people go up to me and say, "Hey, Jimmy, um, man, I feel Pastor Andrew's pretty harsh." And I always felt like, "Oh man, if you say he's harsh, boy, I actually think Pastor Andrew was a lot more stricter with me." Um, because part of it was, well, the reason why was he wanted me to raise me up to be what? A pastor. Does that make sense? Hopefully the standard is the same, but the call to accountability to the standard. Um, hopefully the leaders would be setting a good example. Hold to the same, you know, same laws, but more accountability. Does that make sense? In that way. So sometimes, way back in the past, I remember some guys would come to me, man, Andrew is so harsh. I want to leave or whatever. It's like, hey man, I, I know what it is. And by the way, he says a lot more crazier things to you, to me, than, than to you. Okay, um, I bring that up as to say what my point is trying to drive is this: the First Peter does talk about how God, the judgment will begin in God's household, then the world. Okay, but nevertheless, when when people, when the Jews were to read this, the Hebrews were to read Nahum, they realized, hey, you know what, God, there'll be times where man, God is so hard. They were bringing the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity in this case in Nahum. But still in the harshness, God is also telling, you know what? Still, God will in the future judge their sin also as well with Nahum. So he's trying to say to the readers that knows God, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God to the Hebrews or the Jews or Israel or Judah. And also the same way with the Gentiles, with the Goyims, the Gentiles, the nations also as well. So in light of this, let's turn back with me to Nahum chapter two, uh, 2 and 3. Like why again, um, reminder, why are we looking at all these attributes? Um, why these five attributes that God judges? I think what God is trying to tell both Israel um, or, or, or the God's people and even to the nations is that when God judges, He's not just siding with Israel just because of Israel or Judah just because of Judah, okay? It's because that God is because of His attribute. It is not a nationalism. It's not like God sets up a nation as an idol and therefore that's why He, he has to. It's really because this thing is not a nationalistic thing. If you read the rest of Nahum, notice He never says anything only about, okay, you only wrong Israel, okay? Is really because of who God is, is why he's responding the way he is towards the nation 
of uh, or the Assyrian Empire and specifically the capital, Nineveh, the city-state. Okay. Um, in light of all this, by the way, this is also these attributes are also in play for our salvation, because these attributes, if they if we stand alone by ourselves, by our own power and our own righteousness, we will stand condemned, equally as Nineveh. But you realize that God loved us so much, what did He do? He sent Christ, who suffered the wrath of God, who took on um, the wrath of God, who experienced the glory of God's wrath being poured upon Him from God the Father, to save us from our sins, and, and so therefore we would be able to be saved um, in all ways. Okay, So I think in light of this, this theme attribute is involved in the gospel and also involved with judgment. And let us therefore what turn to God and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen.